I first of all want to thank uh, both Ms. Johns and Seth for coming and sharing with us. You know, as a local uh, pastor and a member of a local congregation, it's so important that our missionaries and our ministries be represented regularly in front of the people. People lose the vision when they don't see the fruit often, unfortunately. And so seeing things like we have with the video of the children at the center, the faces uh, that the effort that we make in August impacts, and seeing the faces of students, uh, and uh, not just the vision, which is important, but the actual living out of that vision, and the way God's using uh, you guys on the campus there, that reinvigorates the support of the local churches. So thank you for coming, and uh, you, you two, uh, your ministries are important to us, and we, you're always welcome here. It's, you can count this as home. I do want to bring a message this morning entitled, The Way Home, and it's centered out of the text, John 14, verses 2 through 4. Last week, uh, we spent our time looking at what it means to believe in God and Jesus. We conclu- concluded that to believe, in, to believe in Jesus means, a definition of believing is, to treasure all of the historical Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. To treasure all of the historical Jesus as our hope of reconciliation with God. And our guarantee of inheritance which in this passage is referenced to be the house of God or heaven, our inheritance, what we have waiting for us. It's almost useless in our culture, the culture Seth was spoke of, and the the culture that we live in, this southern Christianized religious culture. It's almost useless now to talk about believing in Jesus. I mean, I said last week, and I'll say it again, you won't meet anybody in Anniston, Alabama, except for the rare exception that would say, I don't believe in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. They may never darken the door of a church. They may not read their Bibles, but they believe in Jesus. Belief in our culture is equated with intellectual assent. Knowing the facts about who Jesus is or who He was as a man. It can also mean that the person believes in the Jesus that they have created in their mind. Who they want Jesus to be. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's just once you talk to them a little while, you'll realize it's not the same Jesus once delivered to us by the apostles in the Word of God. It's a whole nother person. I mean, because in reality... We live in a world, whether it be the southern cultural Christian world or the postmodern world, which hadn't really taken a lot of root in Calhoun County, though there are pockets of it. It doesn't matter which of those worlds you live in. Jesus is pretty popular this day and time. I mean, there have been as many 2020s on Jesus lately as there have been any one figure, hadn't there? News stories. Larry King wants to talk about Jesus all the time. And they want to talk about him a lot because he's a good philosopher. He's a moral teacher. I mean, he's just in general a good man. He helped a lot of people. Who wouldn't want to talk about Jesus? I mean, I I don't know anybody that is just absolutely against talking about Jesus. I know men who reject belief in Jesus. I know men who get agitated at the Christian conception of who Jesus is. But just in general, to talk about Jesus is not a problem. 
And so we had to define belief as treasuring Christ. Something more descriptive. It's not a new description. I told you John Piper's sermon years ago struck me out on this venture through the Bible to see if that's how God describes belief. And it is, you know. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure which a man finds. He buries in a field. He goes and sells everything he has to have the treasure. Right? Then right after that in Matthew 13 it says... There was a jeweler who found a pearl of great price. He sold his shop and everything he had to have the pearl of great price, the treasure. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like that treasure. And in that kingdom statement, we have the statement about who Jesus is. He is the treasure of heaven, we said last week. We don't just treasure heaven, the place. We treasure the king of heaven, Jesus Christ. He is our treasure. And so we have defined belief as treasuring. And I'm certain that some of you left here last week thinking, I hope you left here thinking, you know, I need to do better. I I, I need to find a way to get this done. I want to treasure Jesus so that you, you hurried off and maybe by Monday, although the passion about what went on here last week and the, and the, and the way that I... I know that if you were here, you understand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be super spiritual in some way, but the way God fell and the way people just hushed and sat in prayer, thinking, contemplating. Do I treasure Jesus? That's what the message was intended for. And so if you left with a lot of questions, good. But probably by Monday, as the passion and all the zeal about the sermon kind of faded... A to-do list popped up in your mind. I need to treasure Jesus, so let me get about it. And so you made the list out, and at the top of the list for the week was treasuring Jesus and everything. Right? And so it became the cliche of life. It became you working hard to muster up belief in treasuring Jesus. But notice last week in the sermon, and some of you even talked to me about it. I had about 12 people talk to me last week and through the week about the sermon. And inevitably, people were searching for, what do I do? And I stopped short of that last week. I didn't tell you anything to go and do. I gave you thoughts to contemplate, to take to the Scriptures and wrestle with God over, how can I treasure Jesus? How can He be the treasure of my life? Well, I don't want to leave you there forever. Treasuring or having faith is something that we are helpless to do in our own strength. Okay? If you left and made the to-do list out and you did really good this week, that does not mean you love Jesus, treasure Jesus more than you did last Sunday. It means you did good this week. But what happens next week when you don't do good? Or the next week or a month or a year from now when you're not... Doing. The focus in our minds, because of our, again, our culture plays into this, it becomes about doing, doing, what I do. And I'm not saying doing doesn't matter. It does. It eternally matters. But it must come from a changed heart. The doing must come from a change of who the person is. You can't muster this doing up. You can't make it happen. The faces Seth showed you on the slideshow. 
They're not mustering up a new life. So what happened to them? They pleaded with God in some form or fashion to make them new. To change them. They did not treasure Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. And His Word struck them in the heart, whatever passage it was they were in. And for the first time, there became this reality that set in that had always existed, but they had never known it was there. And that is, what am I going to do with the Gospel? And, and, and inevitably, the Spirit of God changed the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The Spirit did it. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about treasuring Jesus, the Spirit does it. I'm not letting us off the hook. Don't tune me out and say, well, this sounds like any easy believism sermon I've ever heard. Let God, let go and let God. No. Absolutely not. But I am saying that every moralistic sermon you ever heard won't get you anywhere but hell. That to-do list sermon you've become so familiar in our culture will not save you. It actually is damning a group of people who have darkened the door of the church every Sunday, sat in the pew and listened to the sermon and amended it and left, thinking they're better because of what they've done instead of what Christ has done through His Spirit. And so, we talked about it, and I'm trying again to recap it. We must plead with God that He would make our heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that we see Jesus as the treasure that He truly already is. We're not making Jesus a treasure. He is a treasure. But once that heart is changed, which we can't do, the Spirit does it, then our eyes are open. The scales come off. The blind man sees. The dead man's alive. The liquor store manager now sees Jesus as his life. Not a to-do list. It is his life. This is unfortunately very foreign in many places today in Christianity. If this were possible for us to do it, to accomplish it on our own strength, then faith would be work and it would gain us nothing but the condemnation of God. If we could muster it up, make it happen, make belief happen, it would be a work. God would count it as our own strength apart from Christ and then would condemn us based on our work. But Paul assures us it's not work. It's a gift of God. Faith into that changed, transferred heart. Faith is the gift of God through the work of the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus obviously the treasure of our life so that we may see Him and repent of ourself and our sin. Some of you have come here and you were here last week, and you say, I don't treasure Jesus. I treasure all those things which the world has told me are good, but the church says it's not something I should be a part of. And, and I say, repent of your sin, of who you are and of your sin. And that's something, that's a work that's done in you by the Spirit, and it comes out in faith, which is a gift of God. And the, and the first cries of faith are are just like that. They're, they're, if you've ever been in the birthing room spiritually, you've heard it. They don't have all the answers. They are fully convinced that rain, shine, sleet, snow, death, or indifference, they will have Christ and nothing else. If everything else goes, they'll have Him. 
Some of you are in the boat of you've been living in the world like a worldly person, a sinner, and you felt condemned all your life, but didn't never knew what it was. And so last week we talked about that. And you also could have entered this place a very moral person, but without Christ. And I would say to you, repent of yourself. Repent of yourself. Hate and loathe your righteousness, your morality, your goodness. Hate it. It's just as sinful in and of itself as the drunkard, as the drug addict, as the adulterer. It's just as sinful. It gets you nowhere. Hate that and the sin that it is, which is a rebellion against God. And you say, how is that a rebellion against God? I read the Bible and I'm doing it. Because without the work of the Spirit, the law was always an instrument unto death because of the sin which was in us. That's what Paul assures us of in Galatians. It wasn't an instrument of salvation. It was an instrument unto death. So that sin abounded, is what he says. You can't do it, in other words. You can't muster it up. It, it is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. Belief is the work of God. Treasuring Christ is the work of God in your heart. What do I do? Cry out to Him. Simply put, prostrate yourself before Him. Fall before Him. Repenting of who you are. And begging Him to do what only He can do. That was verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be anxious and fearful. Believe in God, believe also in me. The anxiousness that had come up into the heart of the disciples because Judas was going to betray and Peter was going to deny that anxiousness. We can't go where Jesus is going to go. What's going to happen to us? Our leader is going to go away. And the second in command, Peter, is going to falter. And Judas, the money keeper, the most trusted in a worldly sense among us, is going to betray him. What about us? And Jesus said, don't worry. Believe in God. Believe in me. Treasure God and treasure me. That was his statement in verse 1. And that's what we spent our time on. Now we move on to the next few verses, which Dave read for us. It's clear when looking at the Scripture from beginning to end, as we get down into verse 2 here, I want to... Take verse 1, which I've just recovered. If you weren't here with us, you just got the short version and moved to verse 2, which speaks about a room in the Father's house, which Jesus has prepared for us. A room, a dwelling place. It's clear when looking at the Scripture that one of the basic needs and desires which God puts in the heart of every human being is to find a home. Every human wants a home. Everybody, without exception. Home is not simply a shelter, though. Before you go too far down the road of having a brick house and a roof and however many bedrooms you need with central heat and air, it's not just about that, nor is it about the little thatch hut somewhere in the other parts of the world. It's not about that. Home really isn't about that physical shelter. That's the very basic thing of the shelter, is the very basic physical thing. But what is home? Home is much deeper than that, isn't it? 
home, when I use the term home, not house, I'm thinking about something much more complex than a shelter. And that's what we see in the Bible, that God has put in the heart of every human a desire to have a home. Think about our need of a home. When God created the heavens and the earth, He then created the Garden of Eden. We usually miss that in the text. We assume the whole world was a garden. It wasn't. The whole world was wild and unruly. Untamed. There was lions and bears and tigers out there. But not in the garden. In the garden, there was this harmonious community built between Adam, Eve, and God. God came every day in the cool day and walked with them. There was this community built, this garden. Don't miss it. The whole earth wasn't that way. If it was that way, He wouldn't have commanded them to go out from the garden and have dominion over the whole earth, to put it in subjection. It was out of control. The world was. But the garden was a finely tuned resting place, a home. Remember, God put it in their heart to want a home, and they had it. From the very beginning, they had a home. The garden was home for the human couple. They lived in the garden, they worked in the garden, but the garden was home mainly because of the communion they had with God. That's why it was their home. Not like any other place on the face of the earth, the garden was where He came every day to walk with them in the cool of the day. In the garden, not in Alabama, which was all one landmass at that time, and I don't know where exactly it was, but it was somewhere in the vicinity. Right? It was the garden. And the, the garden was home because of the communion they had with God. Genesis 2 through 3 describes the beautiful home which was destroyed by the decision to sin and rebel against God, destroying that community which they had, the communion. When man sinned, he was barred from his home. Notice the curse he receives is the first of it is the, the statements about the serpent, the woman, the man, and then God says he can't stay in this home anymore. And he kicks him out. And he puts an altar at the outside of the garden, not on the inside anymore. And so Adam and Eve went out to till the ground and to make a living in a place that was not their home. They were discombobulated. They were removed. They were forced to build a new home. And they were blessed by the mercy of God to have a new way to commune with the Lord. I believe implicit in that Genesis text is the sacrificial system. God killing the first animals, clothing the first couple, sending them out, building an altar between them and the old home where they came and made offerings to God. I believe worshiping Him regularly. You say, how do you get that? Because then we go to Cain, right? And what was it that Cain did wrong? He disobeyed God with the pride in his heart, bringing the works of his hands, his morality, his goodness. He brought it to God in the form of fruit and nuts and all his crops. And God wouldn't accept it. What would he accept? Abel's sacrifice. Why? Because Abel's sacrifice was patterned after the first sacrifice. The one they had been instructed to give. Cain hated his brother. Chapter 4 says he kills his brother. Now, it says in verses 11 through 12, just so you don't think I'm gone crazy with my understanding here. And now God says to him, you are cursed from the ground 
which has opened its mouth and received your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Nothing about a home so far, but hang on. What does he say? You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. He took him from his home. What is it that Cain says? I'm the most cursed of all men. They'll kill me because I'm a stranger to them and I'm left to wander homeless. That's what he's saying. He has no home. And so he went to the land of Nod, which means wanderer. Cain lost home because he lost the communion he had with his brethren and with God. Man desires a home. Cain didn't fuss about having to till the ground and how it wouldn't be productive. What did he complain about? Don't drive me from this place. They will kill me. I will have no home. The curse was left and he was thrown out. And then we skip down to verse chapter 11, Genesis 11, that the people after Noah's day and after the repopulation, after the flood, began to build homes. And they built it in a city. And you remember that city. They said, oh, we'll build a city that stretches all the way up to where God is. And we'll worship God there. And what did God do? He destroyed their home. He wreaked havoc on their city. He confused their tongues. They no longer had communion and community. They had to spread out over the whole face of the earth. God destroyed their home. It was their community they loved, and God destroyed it. The languages were confused so that they would no longer live together. And we see this theme of home and the need for community throughout the book of Genesis and really all the way to Revelation and John's vision. We've looked at some of the negative examples. Now let me show you some positive examples. Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram to leave Haran and his father and his people to a new place, a promised land, a home, a new home, which I'll show you, God says, when you get there. And that promise is repeated again in chapter 15 and chapter 17 and chapter 22. God continues to promise him a land Abraham was going to receive a place to have home and communion with not only his people, but with God in the land of Canaan. And so it was a home that Abraham desired. He, everywhere his foot went, he was looking for a place to live. Remember, he and Lot part ways, and Lot picks a bad home, and Abraham picks a good home. It's all about community and home and where you place yourself. You might not have ever seen this theme, but it's throughout the Bible. One more example, just so you get it. This one is a big one. This is, this is the grand of all examples in the Old Testament about home. We need to see this example through Exodus. Moses takes the people of God from the land of Egypt and their slavery into the desert because he wants to lead them to the promised Land which God had promised them through Abraham, their forefather. Okay? The promised land was to be their home, their community where God would dwell with His people. They all knew this. Implicit. Implicitly they all knew it. Why? Because Joseph said, Do not leave my bones in this dead land, but take my bones with you when you leave and bury them with my fathers. He wanted to be with His people. 
in that place which was promised to them by God to have that community. It was a representation of picture, physically, a new place to live. You know the story. The people began to doubt God from the day they left the land of Egypt. They often grumbled and planned to return to their slavery in Egypt rather than continuing on the road to the promised land. After they went through the desert and they've seen God in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, they come to Mount Sinai and God calls Moses up and he's going to deliver the law. A reestablishment of the relationship which existed prior to that and a further definition of what the relationship should look like. It's a glorious day. And how do the people respond? Impatience leads to, let's elect a new leader. Leads to, Aaron, take this gold and make us a God fashioned after Egyptian gods. We're going back to Egypt. We don't care about a home which God has for us. We love this world. That's what they're saying. We don't want God. We want the trappings and the gifts that we can get, even if it's in slavery. We'll take this. So they did their acts. And they elected a new leader. And God sent Moses down off the mountain with a warning. Go and see what your people have done. He comes down off the mountain. And Exodus 32 says, He hears something that sounds like the sound of war. And then he realizes, no... It's a party. And I can imagine in Moses' heart that they, his heart starts to be, they're celebrating God. They're in such anticipation of my return that they're in worship, full-out worship. And then he turns the bend and they've got this idol sitting in the midst of the camp. And they're prostituting themselves one to another in celebration of this deity. Now you know why he got so angry that he threw the commandments to the ground. You people don't deserve the Word of God. And he came down in fury. Listen, sometimes fury is called for when people lose sight of who God is. Sometimes it's called for. It's righteous indignation. He calls out, Who will be with the Lord your God? And the sons of Levi come to him. You remember? And he says, take your sword, each man, to his brother and his son and kill them all. 3,000 men were slaughtered in the camp. 3,000. Can you imagine the carnage, the blood, the fear, people cowering? And then he says these words. He comes down and and, and he gets in their midst and the Lord said to him, The the Lord said to him, depart, go from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is after they betrayed God. God says, go to the land. To your offspring I will give it. Remember, home is more than a physical place. It's more than shelters. This desire for home is bigger than that. Listen to these words. God said, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God's going to keep his promises because he's faithful to his promises. I'm going to give you what I said I would give. 
go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds great up till here. But I will not go with you. You can have the physical home, but you cannot have that desire which I've placed in your heart to want community with me. I won't go. The rest of the chapter, he describes this fact that he would he would consume them if he went because they were stiff-necked and they were disobedient. But I want you to see what Moses says. The people stripped down to their bare clothes before God in repentance. And Moses says this, again emphasizing the importance of community with God. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider to this, to, uh, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Home is more than a shelter. It's more than a mere community of people. Home is a community with shelters, with fellowship, between brothers, but with God. Home, that desire we all have for it, is only satisfied when those elements are all together. Shelter, fellowship among the brethren, but most importantly, God is there. Moses said, I don't want the land flowing with milk and honey. If you won't go, I'll stay in this tent and I'll wait. And God said, because I know you. Because I do know your face and I know your heart, I will go with you. He, he did go. And so, I hope you understand that this basic desire for a home, this deep desire to have communion, is a deep desire to have communion with God and to have it in a very permanent way. Ever since the garden, man has longed for a permanent dwelling. And it's to this principle which Jesus appeals to calm their hearts. This principle of community with God. Home. Shelters, fellowship, and fellowship with God. This is where Jesus goes when they doubt what will happen to us. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not this way, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also? It's to this principle of community with God, which God, which God in the flesh, Jesus, appeals to, to calm them in their day of fear. That's what heaven is meant to be for us. It is not meant to be some, some materialistic, man-centered southern gospel singing blasphemy about how we got a mansion just on the hilltop, which I read to you last week, and I'll save you from that again this week. How we ever got off so off track about heaven, I, how I got so far off, I'll never understand, because the Bible's principles are clear. 
Heaven is community with God. It is a physical place. I'm not questioning that. It is a magnificent physical place where resurrected bodies will dwell with Him in what's called the new earth and the new Jerusalem forever. But it's much more than a beautiful physical place. It is community with God, like He had with Adam and Eve, but better because Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to fall from that community and we will never fall from it. It is eternal. Why? Because Christ has redeemed us. If Christ cannot fall, we Therefore, cannot fall. Jesus, the master teacher, takes us into the heart of where God wants us to be. And that's community with him. Quickly, we move to this, this point. Heaven is our home, prepared by Christ, so that we will, we will be with him for eternity. I have one point, and we're finished. That's all I planned for today. I want you to get this. Heaven is God's house. Heaven is spoken of in three ways in the Bible. Quickly. First of all, where the birds fly and the clouds sit. That's the first heaven. The second heaven called the firmament. The space, the outer space, the planetary realm, universe. Second heaven. Third heaven, God's house, God's dwelling place. There's three heavens spoken of. And Paul speaks of all three of them in this way. Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. I must go on boasting, he says. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. He's the man. In Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. There it is, the third heaven. The home of God. He was caught up there, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. The same word Jesus used on the cross with the thief, about being with him in paradise. Paul was caught up into that place. The third heaven. It's a physical place. It is a real place. I emphasize that because we live in a day of doubt, in a day where people don't believe in heaven. They believe in a place where the soul of man goes and he's in unity with the universe and he comes back often in reincarnated states and all these different things. Nothing about that is in the Bible. The Bible speaks of resurrected bodies eventually dwelling with God in a real, literal, physical place called New Jerusalem. And the place they are now will come from heaven to earth, the new earth. Heaven contains many dwelling places. Second point under the larger point, right out of the text, 2A, heaven contains many dwelling places. You notice that in the ESV, which I'm reading from and which Dave read from and many of our members have, it says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Good translation. The NASB, if you've got that, as Aaron calls it, it's the inspired version of the English Bible. The NASB reads, dwelling places. It's okay. He can come along a little slower. He's older than I am. He'll come to the ESV eventually. NASV, the dwelling places. Good translation. But some of you have got a new King James Version. And a King James Version. Okay? And I know some of you might have been raised. I'm not, I'm not, the King James Version is a good translation. Okay? I'm not saying, I'm not going on a tirade here about translations. 
But it is not the only translation. And neither is it without mistake. The mistake is often not in what it says so much as our understanding of it. Okay? Because it's old King English. We don't always get it. And they put the word mansion there. Thus all the southern gospel songs about a mansion on a hilltop, I think. They got that word mansion straight from the Latin, mansion. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I don't speak Latin, but it's mansion with an E at the end. They got that word from there. And so they're right, but that's not what you think of because the Latin means dwelling place, room, place along the way to hitch a horse. Doesn't sound at all like the mansion on the hilltop with 14 rooms and a flat screen plasma TV in every room and golden toilets. Doesn't sound like that, does it? That's because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said nothing about living in a big mansion. That's our materialistic, hedonistic, American lifestyle being read back into the King James Version, which was actually right in their day. It was. It was that, it's a dwelling place. That's all it means. Taken in context, I believe room is best here because these places are inside God's house. I view them, and I'm not the only one, as flats or apartments. Kind of changes the thought process, doesn't it? We're all going to live in a great housing complex <laughs> in the New Jerusalem. I say that because there's tons of people in that New Jerusalem, and maybe each person's going to get an acre or something. I don't, I don't know. But inside the city, we basically build dwellings that go on top of one another, and that's for room's sake. And for, I know it's a big place, don't get me wrong, but there's going to be lots of people there, physical bodies, no less, not just spirits, so we can't just float around, Okay? A real place, but it's not that mansion you've been dreaming of. I don't know exactly what it looks like. The Bible is not very clear about exactly what it looks like because that's not the focus of the Bible. The focus of the Bible is community with brethren and Jesus Christ, the treasure of heaven. That's the focus of the Bible. And so if you hit a rough patch in your faith, don't sing a song about some grand mansion with flat screen TVs and playing golf all day and eating chocolate without getting fat. That is not the hope of the Bible. The hope of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to dwell with Him. Whatever the place looks like, wherever exactly it's located, but I know it's there and it's going to come down to a new earth and it's going to be glorious because He is there. Because He is there. And so, that's why you must start treasuring Him now because He's the treasure that will be there. If you don't treasure Him here, how will you treasure Him there? You'll despise that place. You'll hate it. You'll think you got gypped. Where's my big layout? It's significant because God is not waiting to see who will join Him there. When the text says, in my Father's house are many rooms. They're there. God's not waiting to see how many people are going to believe. And Jesus is running over. Guys, get on that construction crew and build a new place. we got another believer. 
Whew, I'm glad I figured that out before he got here. He would have been out on the street. No place to live. No. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. It foretells us that they're there. God knows how many people are going to be there. He's not expanding heaven ever on top of itself. It's there. It's been there since before the foundation of the world. It's been there. But we must deal with the other part of the text, right? How then is Jesus preparing the place for us if it's already there? Because heaven is prepared by Christ going to the cross. It may be controversial. You might not agree with me. So I'll go with a bigger scholar. Somebody who you might not know, but he's the real deal. Thomas Schreiner, he writes big books, 800-page books. He must be right. No, he, he's a New Testament scholar. He's at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and this is what he says. The cross is the means by which Jesus departs to the Father. He's not reunited with his Father without undergoing death. The disciples can be united with Jesus only by his going to the Father for his death is the basis upon which they can enjoy Jesus' presence forever. He has to prepare the way for them by giving His life so that they will have access to the Father's presence. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Not as if He goes up there to prepare a place. He goes to the cross to prepare a place. And that's in line with Hebrews chapter 9. We're moving to a close. Say, what in the world does Hebrews 9 have to do with all this? Flip to Hebrews 9. We're going to bring this thing in for a landing right here on a high note on a glorious note on a note that makes me want to shout the beauty of this is the preparation is complete it's done the moment he says into your hands i commend my spirit it's ready it's ready hebrews 9 11 through 28 listen to these words this is how we want to close listen to these words But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tent of His body, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I go to prepare a place for you. Where? To the cross, Jesus is saying. I'm going to die and purchase that place for you. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, speaking of the old covenant, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. The new covenant. What we live under. The two covenants aren't in opposition. Jesus fills the old one out. He completes it. The old one is very significant in a shadowy sense. It gives us the essence of what is coming in Christ. All the pictures it gives us are significant. But they're all fulfilled, yes and amen, in Jesus Christ. By the way, all the promises of the Old Testament are yes and amen in Jesus. We're not sitting around hoping He gets it done. He's finished. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called 
may receive the promised eternal inheritance. My Father's house is filled with dwelling places. That's part of that inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where, listen to this, is very key, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Jesus said, I have to go die to ratify the will which promised you that place to live with me. I got to go give myself or it's no good. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now this is where... It gets so rich. I go to prepare a place for you. On the cross, he died and offered himself up to ratify the will which gives us the inheritance. Part of that being a dwelling place in the house of God forever. But look at this. He says, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, Christ sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Old covenant, new covenant. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. He's prepared the place for us now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For them, for then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting Him. If it weren't this way, I wouldn't have told you, I'm coming again to take you, that where I am you may be also. That's the end of Hebrews 9. What gets me so excited about the connection there is this. Christ prepared the place through the cross, the offering of His blood. And just as the tent and the utensils and the people were sprinkled with the blood, so heaven has been ordained by the blood of Christ. Every doorpost in that place, every doorpost in that place covered with the blood of Christ, the Passover Lamb, we dwell there in Him, in Him, through His death. Through His resurrection, we now are with Him in that place. And we will be with Him physically come the resurrection. He has smeared His blood across heaven. And that's a beautiful thing. Because that guarantees that inheritance. It can never be taken away. Don't put your hope in a golden road and a golden house. Put your hope in the blood which makes that place perfect and can never fail. Put your hope in the one who shed that blood, Jesus Christ. Treasure Him because He is the treasure of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we close this time in Your Word. I am.